Good morning, church. What a blessing it is for me to stand before you this morning. It always is, but I just like to say it over and over again because it is. I don't think I need my glasses. My name is Carl, for those of you who don't know, and I'll be your scripture reader for today. This morning, we see the greatest competition on the globe for God's glory, the turf of the human heart. We are created to love God and enjoy him forever, but our hearts are prone to wander. The gospel frees us to flee from the idolatry that harms us and fuels us to return to our created purpose, doing everything for the glory of God. Please join me in reading today's verses. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14, and then 31 through 33. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Responsive reading. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers. The word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Carl. For those of y'all who don't know, he was rubbing it in. He said, I don't need my glasses today because he knows in the last service, mine broke in half and, ha and had to be repaired. So thank you, Carl. I appreciate you reading. Seriously. Yeah. All right. So... <laughs> Just kidding. The glasses part was true. Uh, someone replaced them during the service. Hey, let me clear something up. After the last service, we got to clear this up, okay? We did not schedule a sermon on idolatry months ago, the same weekend as Texas, OU, and A&M in Alabama, all right? We didn't do it on purpose. However... If you feel a little bit convicted that your emotions got too high or went down too low, you can join me in taking God's invitation for our hearts to be revived, renewed, and restored by a greater love than the things of this world. A greater victory, believe it or not, there's a greater victory than college football. Jesus rose from the grave. And our invitation today is to address the heart of the problem of life. Now, you might say, hey, this is Paul's third chapter where he's dealing with the same problem. Food, sacrifice to idols in Corinth. I mean, can't he make his point a little more succinctly? Probably. But he, get, he gets us to this place this week after Chapter 8, helping us to see that uh, the gospel frees us to, to love our brothers and sisters as Christ loved us by laying down our rights so that others can be built up. 
after showing us in chapter 9 Paul's life, using himself as an example of someone who would do all things and become a slave to everyone, a servant to everyone, in order that he might win some for the gospel. In chapter 10, the invitation is to answer that question, why do I understand those principles with my mind, but I can't live them out in my heart? How do we make this journey from understanding the gospel to really living for God's glory in every aspect of our story? Everything we do all the way down to eating and to drinking. You see, the reality is that there's an issue behind all of your issues. Behind the depression, behind the discouragement, behind the emptiness, behind the frustration, behind the agony of living within your limitations, there's a deeper issue. And biblically, that's diagnosed as idolatry. And this is why Paul, if you have your Bible, please keep it open. We're going to look through uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, we're going to set a paradigm first. But in verse 7, it's why after he speaks about uh, the wilderness generation, in verse 7 he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down and they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And he's not talking about cards. He's talking about cutting cards. You know what I mean? This is revelry. This is idolatry of the most holistic sense. This is why in chapter 14, in verse 14 of chapter 10, he comes down and says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because there's an issue that is behind the issue. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin with the end of where Paul goes in this three-chapter argument. And it is a restorative invitation for you to find not only a deep level of fulfillment that your heart hungers for, but a restoration and renewal that you're longing for. So let's go to the end. The goal for all of life, all of humanity, is to do everything, even our eating and drinking, for the glory of God. This is what he says in, in verse 31. So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is the priority for the people who know God's grace. And what we could do here, and I think this is worthy of note, what we could do here is emphasize the, the framework for Christian ethics. Why are Christian ethics unique in a world that seems to have ethical compromise? And, and we could do it. It's really the foundation of our nation, but there's something beyond this, a greater invitation I want to give, but let's just note it. So Christian ethics, they begin, it begins with a different perspective. We live by faith. And the uh, Christian ethic has a completely different means of which practicing ethics that's love. Christian ethics has a unique standard for our ethical life. And that standard is God's character and God's word in the scriptures. But the goal of Christian ethics is far unique from all other goals of ethical systems uh, anywhere around. And that goal is what we're going to really look at today. It is to do 
everything for the glory of God. Everywhere, in everything, the goal, the motive of our whole life is the glory of another, the one who gives us life. And here's what that means, that no matter what we engage in, we are seeking to exalt the name of God, Jesus' name above our names or other names. What it means is that when we seek to achieve, we do so for the magnification of God and his character, his work and his love. It means that everything from work, from our teams, from our classes, to our families, our friendships, our free times, what we use in our finances, that our highest standard of good, the greatest good, is God himself. That the love that is greater than all other loves, that the beauty that we see above all other beauties, the highest thing that is to be exalted in everything we do to the minute things of eating and drinking, that means, yes, I can drink orange juice for the glory of God. And I love it. I love it. I love orange juice. But that is what it means, the purpose that you were created for. Humans, our chief end is to know God's love in this way and to enjoy God on this level, where God is exalted everywhere and in everything. Now, the Corinthians, who were Christians, uh, they, we've already talked about how they've separated themselves, and listen, from the political power of all of their city and their region. They separate themselves from the economic authority, all the strength of the, the social fabric of their society. Why? Because they were not worshiping the pagan gods in the pagan temples. And we've talked about the temple of Apollos, talked about the temple of Aphrodite, and they separated themselves from that. But not only that, they lived in sacrifice, not just socially, but with one another. In that the, the meat that was offered to idols in worship, it was okay to eat. But because we have weaker brothers and weaker sisters who used to worship these pagan idols and now have come to Christ, we have to consider their conscience more than what is a convenience for us. And what, what ends up happening when we see the framework of this argument and we begin to apply it to the lowest level of lives, we realize, ah, this is more difficult than I thought. My heart truly is prone to wander. There's an issue that's behind all these other issues. So we're going to talk about idolatry from the context or the framework of your heart affection. And let me tell you what you do. You have loves of your life, goals that you want to reach, people that, levels that you want to get to, right? people you want to impress, uh, stages that you want to flourish and you have things that are affections of your heart that are so great. Here's what you do. You attach your affections to something and that thing will carry you into a current that will ruin you until you can be rescued by a greater love. I want to illustrate this through uh, a, a synopsis of a story of a spearfishing woman. Now, if you come to Tribe, you're like, dude, you talked about spearfishing at Tribe. Is there something we need to know? No, I'm not getting into spearfishing. Yes, I am married to a woman who loves hunting and fishing and listens to great story podcasts, and she shares them with me. So there you go. 
I'm going to tell you a story or a summary that I think illustrates this really well. And it's about a woman named Kim Warner. Uh, I'm not a spearfisher woman or man. <laughs> yeah, she is. And she's one of the best in the world. And she was spearfishing uh, on a trip off the coast of Maui at the mouth of a bay. And she had with her uh, probably who is the greatest spearfishing person you know, that is known in the American spearfishing circles. You'd be real familiar with him. Um, and she really wanted to impress him. And they went out, and you, you can identify, right? You make decisions sometimes, or you act a certain way out of, out of wanting to impress people. Is that just her or just me? You get that? This is where she was. And uh, while they're standing there or swimming there, they're looking for something to spearfish. Out of the corner of their eye, they see this massive wahoo. Now, if you are in the spearfishing world and you go off the coast of Hawaii anywhere, you know that the wahoo is like the trophy. It's what you want. And this wasn't just an average wahoo. This was a massive, massive wahoo. That's not the fish, but it's an example of her with a wahoo. That's really her, not the real fish, but that is a real fish. Anyway, you get it. So her heart, and you've been there, she had this moment where not only did she see that she was in a place where she could impress this person that she really looked up to, but she could achieve greatness. And you know this moment, you, you walk into it or swim into it, and you feel it electrically in your whole body. That's where she was. She felt this opportunity. She looked over at Brian, the guy with her, and he just goes like this, like, shoot it, shoot it. She aims her spearfishing gun at the Wahoo, takes a shot, and wouldn't you know it, pow, nails it. And that fish does what every fish does when it gets on a hook. What's it? Just start swimming as fast as it can in the opposite direction. And spearfisher people, men or women, they're ready for this. They have their spear on a line, just like a normal fishing line. And she tells a story, it's going out. She has 200 yards of line on this spear. And you know what happens? Boom, it catches and that fish keeps going. She's not a very large person. It starts carrying her through the water. She tells a story. She starts skipping on top of the water. She is not going to let go because she has to land this wahoo. And you know what happens? The line goes limp. The fish came off. And she felt foolish, afraid even to look up, to, to look Brian in the face. But you know what happened? She did look up. And what she did not realize was how far that fish had carried her from sea and from safety. When she tried to swim back, she realized she was caught in a current. And that current was like a riptide carrying her away. I don't know, what is that, what is that sea turtle's name in Nemo? What? Huff, crush, yeah, crush. You know, crush, all oh, right, dude, yeah, I'm in the current, yeah. That was like the opposite of her. She began to panic, not even having the energy to swim to safety. You see, our hearts, idolatry is this, this issue of the heart. And I'm going to tell you, I talk to people all the time. They say, I had no idea that what I was giving myself would carry me this far away. People, they buy something, a material object, a car, a house, something. They get to a certain status that they've always wanted to get to. And they had no idea that they would look up and be in so much financial trouble or so empty are so still not accepted. 
people that I walk with it, this, I mean, I had no idea. I was just using the internet for work. I was just studying late at night. I had no idea what I saw and what I'd keep going. It would grab my heart and carry me to places I had no idea that I would go to. Or people who mess around with substances, who drink. They say, oh man, I, I was just having fun. I just coping with stuff. It helped me be more normal. I was hanging out. I had no idea it would turn into an addiction. And then I would be this far from my family. I walk with people all the time. And I can identify with people whose hearts have reached out and latched onto that thing they thought would be the ultimate, only to be carried away into a current that leads to ruin. We're all there. All of us are there. You see, the issue of idolatry that Paul is addressing here is, is not moral management so people can just check boxes and, and, and do what they're supposed to do as Christians. He wants to get to the heart of the matter, the issue behind the issue, so that people can truly be restored and renewed into the place that they're created. <clears throat> idolatry is a heart issue. I think Martin Luther said it really well on the screen in his catechism when he, when he starts talking about uh, the Ten Commandments in his catechism, I read this, this as a reference from somewhere, but he says, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. What does your heart trust in? What is your deepest heart affection? What do you seek to shoot out and latch onto for your ultimate thing of significance? The question is not if your heart struggles with idolatry. The question is, what do you worship? Who do you worship that is not God? Tim Keller has a phenomenal book on idolatry. It's called Counterfeit Gods. He also has some great resources out there, but he has a sermon on Acts 19. Uh, that I think he has a line. I heard this a long time ago. I wrote it down and found it in some notes. He says this, every single culture is dominated by idols unless it's dominated by the glory and the grace of God. What is it that you see as your primary goal? Your ultimate place where you really believe that you will have achieved what your heart hungers for if you can get there. <sighs> Uh, I'm going to drill in a little bit here, if you don't mind. I just need to help, help identify with you. If you look to your finances, your family, or your friendship networks for security, biblically, that's idolatry. Anywhere you look in the world for something that only God can give you, your heart is being carried out to see in a current that will ruin you. If you look to your material resources for strength and security, if you look to your work or your performance or your friend group for significance, that's an idol. If you look to pleasures for peace or for serenity, that is an idol. If you look to your zip code, your alma mater, your investment funds for status, significance or success, that's an idol. If you look to politics or popularity or places like a ranch or vacations that you escape to that are the, sus the substance of life, those are idols. You know it in good relationships 
maybe you're married or you have friendships or teammates and you get in an argument, you start fighting. You care more about winning the argument and you see the person as an enemy, someone you need to defeat so that some sick way your relationship turns into a place where you're validated. That's idolatry. When you look for meaning, even in good things like God's mission, you know you can serve and be a servant and do it for yourself so that you feel better about yourself or in some way you can virtue signal so that others think better about you. Biblically, that's idolatry. If you look to money, money as your ultimate place of security, the anxiety that comes into this heart when I start doing math, <laughs> that's idolatry because I'm looking to, to a place that's created rather than the creator for something that only he can give. Significance, <clears throat> status, substance, security, strength. And where you know that your heart has attached is when your emotions get elevated. If you do well, it goes to your head. If your team does well, it goes to your head. If your family's doing well, everything's great. If your friendships are good, everything's here, yeah. Well, if your team does bad or your family's not doing well, or your finances, oh, you're down here. Your emotions are down here. Something good that's created becomes an ultimate thing. And you've been carried out into the current of our culture. And the gospel wants to bring healing and hope. Christian idolatry in Corinth, it teaches us that there is a culture that can lead us to compromise even as Christians, maybe especially as Christians, because there are desires in our heart that, that we think should just direct us and direct, dictate our decisions. But our desires of our heart, it's deceitful above all things. They have to not only be cured by the gospel, but they, they really have to cult, be cultivated by the gospel so that you can find the freedom you're created for. That freedom is to live for a glory and a love that's greater than yourself. The gospel solution that Paul celebrates is this. It's not the duty, flee from idolatry, but it's the delight. How is it a delight? How is it a delight to flee? Now, you'll remember when we talked in 1 Corinthians 6, if you were here, where we talked about fleeing sexual immorality, the pornea of our culture, the pornea of our world that was actually uh, pretty on par with what it was for Paul in Corinth and a great example of Joseph in Genesis 39. You remember this? And Joseph, uh, though he was in Egypt and he was working for Potiphar's wife, he had this invitation to sleep with the most powerful woman in the world. She wanted him, but he knew he had a greater identity as a a member of the people of God. In, in Egypt, he didn't have to live like the Egyptians. So he fled. And we've talked about Daniel, who was in Babylon, had a greater identity as a member of the people of God. In Babylon, he didn't have to live as a Babylonian. He could flee idolatry. In the same way, the, the Christians in Corinth had a greater identity. When in Corinth, they didn't have to live like the Corinthians. Even outside the political, social, economic, power-broking relationships of the day, they knew there was a greater power. 
so too for us today. And the way that we get in touch with that greater power where we see fleeing as a, a, a delight rather than a duty is that we understand the beauty and the power of the gospel. You know, Thomas Chalmers, he was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor in the 1800s, and he's famous for a sermon that now my accent's gone crazy. I need to stop it before everyone's distracted. That's the worst Scottish accent ever, wasn't it? Yeah, it was bad. You know, you agreed too quickly, Chris, all right? So it was a good effort, gay for effort. Okay, all right. So he preached this sermon from 1 John chapter 3, and it's called The Explosive Power of a New Affection. And you can find this sermon online. And he really celebrates the heritage of, of, of deep thinking uh, Christians that have gone before him. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who, who preached a treatise on the, effect, the affections of, of religion, like true religious affection, all the way back to St. Augustine, who uh, you can read his book of the Confessions or other works by Augustine. You can see uh, the explosive power of a new affection. And it's basically this. Your loves that you have attached to things of this world that have carried you out into currents that are going to lead you to ruin, the way that you change those is by an explosive power of a new affection. Now, if you're like me, you've experienced the, the consequences of the idols that you worship, uh, and it still hasn't changed your heart. Or if you're like me, you've really worked hard, you've tried hard to change, but there's something that, that needs to change in here. And when you experience the, the, the first level of disappointment of the idols that you worship, the disillusionment that comes when you think this certain place or person or, or prominence will, will satisfy you in here, when you reach that and it doesn't do it, your heart just goes after something else. The, the way that our heart affections are changed is by understanding the great affection that God has for us. And God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he died for us. The Bible teaches that all over the place. And the reason why having this power of a new affection, of finding our security, our significance, our status, our strength, our serenity, and the substance of our story, all in the love, the grace, and the work of God is this, because it is your affections that ignite your activity. It is your affections that drive you. It is your affections that move you. And when you understand God's affection and his love for you, then no matter what we face, that explosive power turns the duty of fleeing the idols of our culture into delight. Because we're running from that which harms us and running to the one who created us and loves us. And that love is where we find true restoration. We find a new primary purpose. If love explodes our life and our affections become redirected, then your purpose is the glory and the gain of the headwaters of that love. If you really know a deeper love, one that satisfies your longings, your desires, and your needs, then the primary, primary purpose you celebrate is a beauty that's greater than all beauties of the world. 
It's a goodness greater than all the worldly definitions. It's this victory that's greater than all cultural victories. It's a glory and something more weighty and significant than anything this world has to offer. It's God himself who becomes our primary purpose. And it, gives, it leads to a new primary participation. And what Paul does here, if you, if you look down in your passage, you see that, that verses one to five, the things that took place as an examples is Paul talking about, it's really one to seven, the participation that the Israelites had after God's redemption. They're participating with things of the world. And this, this, this do not be idolatrous command that he has, it comes right before this promise that God gives. Look, we don't need to put God to the test. He's going to give us strength. There's no temptation beyond which that, that we can't sustain and endure because of what God gives us, the strength that he gives us for who he is, the love that propels us. He promises to protect us. And then he invites us into this new, deeper participation, a living relationship where there is literal giving and receiving with God. Do you know God on that level? Where you are free to give him your anxiety and receive from him peace? Where you are free to give him all the glory and you receive from him a deeper sense of security? Do you know Jesus on that level where he, you can give him your love and be vulnerable and know that you get a stronger sense of security and love than anyone or anything in this world can have? Or do you know Jesus on that level? Because that's the invitation. It's deep, transforming Restoration. We're going to talk more about the primary participation, but it's the opposite of, of, of what Paul is addressing in the Greco-Roman world, whereby the sacrifice of humans led to the acceptance of the gods of the world. It is the opposite of the pagan practices that the Gentiles would have known, whereby the human effort would have won the heart affections of the false gods. This is completely countercultural to the world that we live in, whereby you are accepted in love based upon the sacrifice and work of another. But this participation is what leads to true restoration. Christ's sacrifice of his body and his blood for us, it establishes what we never could accomplish otherwise so that we can have active, a living, participatory relationship whereby we give our hearts and receive all that our hearts hunger for. And this leads to finally our new primary practices. Now, James K. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, it's a great book. He's kind of the latest list uh, uh, on the list of reformed thinkers who diagnose the direction of your loves that either lead to further disorder or further restoration. He does a great job in his intro, uh, first few chapters. He, he talks about how, you know, a lot of people in the reformed faith look back at the Reformation and they say, oh, they were just trying to get rid of all, all liturgies altogether. What really matters is Jesus. It's true, but really what they're arguing for and what we need to embrace is a, is a more living liturgy. And I love his, his argument here. It's a liturgy for life whereby our, our habits, the spiritual practice of habits, actually reinforce that which our hearts hunger for. Now, you want to know how that story of Kemi Warner ends? It's really amazing. She is floating in this current, and the 200 yards of thread is dangling on the bottom, and she articulates it this way. She says, the end of my line got hung up on an unseen pinnacle. 
Underwater, there was this outcropping of rocks and what enabled her to stop floating away in the current to her corruption was something stuck. Now, if you have been stuck in an idolatrous activity, if you've been ruining your life or ruining relationships from, from priorities that are not what you're created for, you know that sometimes that unsticking, oh, that's a hard situation in life where you face the casualties of your decision. But the invitation is for us to, to have our heart to get stuck on an unseen pinnacle and practices that are new and primary, that, that feed the love of the Lord in our life more than the false loves of this world. Here's what it looks like. It looks like the invitation for you to live in a deeper level of dependence, truly where you can take your heart affections and vulnerably put them at the feet of Jesus, like the, the woman who was caught in adultery. She just poured out her heart before the Lord. And what did God say? What did Jesus say? No one condemns you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. To put your affection and your devotion at his feet daily in practice of confession and repentance. You know what else it looks like? This new primary practice of, of taking time away from screens, so that you can have screen time with your savior. Allow his word to speak to you. Be still enough in your mornings, in your meal times, and your evenings where his spirit can actually nourish your heart through the word. You see these new primary practices, they really are like the, the leader of a line that gets caught on an unseen pinnacle whereby you didn't even realize maybe you were drifting, but you build in these spiritual practices, these habits where God can catch your heart and remind you how much he loves you and remind you that you're created for him, that you have a, a greater invitation for participation more than constantly giving yourself to your work. How many times a week do I hear, I'm just too busy, I'm too busy. You see, a lot of people wanna say busyness is an idolatry, it's an idol. I'm gonna tell you it's not. It's fruit of a heart that is restless. And with St. Augustine, we celebrate that our heart will be restless until it finds rest in the Lord, that the powerful affection of his love for you will redirect the affections of your heart and give you a new primary purpose that everywhere and everything, we live for the glory of God, a new primary participation with new primary practices. Our hearts are prone to wander. The goodness of Jesus is what transforms us. Please stand, let's respond. We're gonna have a season of worship. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Help us to see, to know, to trust your love in a way that not only leads us to you as savior, but shapes us to, to, to be more like you. Lord, that you truly would ambush our hearts with your love that we would be able to live for you in all we do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.